Welcome to Financial Frameworks, where our goal is to increase your financial decision-making and value investing skills by combining solid fundamentals with what you already know. Today's podcast builds on the last one by going into more detail regarding Professor Bruce Greenwald's value investing tools for companies that he considers candidates for long-term success. He calls them franchise businesses or stocks and has a method for valuing their growth. I'm presenting a summary of the core concepts and key metrics that Professor Greenwald employs to implement his adaptation of Graham and Dodd's investment practices to the 21st century and 21st century markets. The summary presents the essence of Greenwald's approach so that you can incorporate those elements that make sense to you in your own investing practice. Professor Greenwald believes that Graham and Dodd's value investing principles are solid, but they need refinement due to a number of very significant factors. His primary factors are the globalization of markets, which have created much larger markets and also more specialized markets. Secondly, the rise of service industries. Also, the increased quality of investments, some of which is due to increased regulation, and it's also due to the widespread availability of better quality information. There's also a wider variety of investment methods, such as mutual funds and ETFs, and individual investors have greater access to markets, quicker access to markets, using the internet. All of this makes finding undervalued stocks, which is the goal here, a different enterprise than when Benjamin Graham built his model. In the previous podcast, I noted that Greenwald divides his analysis of a prospective investment or stock into three parts. He, number one, reviews assets, He wants current assets to be more than total liabilities. Secondly, current earnings that need to be sustainable. And finally, he analyzes potential growth as a separate category in order to properly value the stock's potential. Today's podcast focuses on that third factor, how to analyze growth. Because Greenwald argues that franchise businesses or very profitable businesses will depend on growth to make them that valuable. Here is his reasoning. First, Greenwald only applies growth analysis techniques to businesses that have some sort of durable competitive advantage, Benjamin Graham's words, or they have a strong moat, which is a term that Warren Buffett has made popular. This moat makes it difficult for other similar businesses to achieve the earnings and the growth and the profitability of such a company. Coca-Cola is the most frequently used example. Secondly, non-franchise businesses are unlikely to achieve long-term growth because, and this may be a company that has a short-term competitive advantage, but they won't achieve the long-term growth because other competitors will enter the market and erode the business market share and the profit margins of those companies. In a video that I will post on my website, Uh, Professor Greenwald wonders whether Tesla might be one such business. He's not saying don't buy Tesla. He's saying if you do buy it, watch its story carefully because there could be what he calls earnings fade and their market share is likely to change within two or four or six years and their profit margins possibly go down. 
He argues that such a company can't maintain its competitive advantage over other similar businesses for the primary business and economic reasons of the industry that it's in. Professor Greenwald cites automobile companies as being very difficult to maintain a moat because the market is so big, the profit margins are sufficiently small, but the profit is still there that another company, look at Kia and Honda, entering the traditional auto market years ago, they came in, they took enough market share away from General Motors or Ford uh, to make money and to return a profit. We'll look at Greenwald's method by dividing the key concepts I've selected into three parts. The data used, the formula that pulls the data together to determine a company's value, which then triggers the buy or non-buy decision, and contextual elements that I think should be part of your mental furniture. First, the data. Professor Greenwald looks at four sets of numbers to determine a company's growth rate. They are, number one, the cash return or the sustainable distributable earnings, as in dividends and stop buybacks, both of which put money in a shareholder's pocket. He uses an average for several previous years. Number two, the organic growth revenues that come through growth in sales or revenues or reduction of operating costs. Again, he uses an average from several years in order to take into account business cycles and one-time events. Third is the earnings from active reinvestment. It's the net of revenues minus the costs to produce those revenues. For example, if a dollar of profits are reinvested, do they produce an additional dollar, 20 cents, $1.50 in increased profits? Again, he uses averages for guidance. Number four is the cost to the franchise of its fade rate. This is due to age, increased competition, loss of market share to competitors, age of patents, any number of factors. This definitely requires some judgment. However, I recommend that if you have time, you take a look at a video produced for Barnes & Noble in which Professor Greenwald is interviewed by Aaron Bellissimo. Greenwald provides examples of company that we are familiar with, past and present, and he discusses their fade rates. He talks about Xerox, he talks about newspaper companies, IBM, Apple, and Google. He outlines how he calculates the fade rates in terms of a company's earnings, and if you watch the video, you will get a good feel for both the calculations he uses and the estimating or judgment factor that is required. I will provide a link to the video on my website, Financial Frameworks. So we have four sets of data, and each of these figures, what you will produce at the end, the cash return, the organic growth revenues, earnings, and active reinvestment and fade rate are presented as percentages of revenues so that your final growth rate total is a percentage. Most of the information necessary for these calculations is contained in standard financial statements, their company's annual reports, their 10Qs. While you'll need to make judgments regarding, with regard to funds used for the active reinvestment process and the fade rates. With regard to fade rates, industry trend information appears to be what Greenwald leans on for guidance in this calculation. He talks about the judgment process specifically in the video that I mentioned above. 
and the link I'll post on my website. Also, fade rates need to be estimated, and you will find that Professor Greenwald uses trend information from a respective industry because the fade rate in a technology industry and the fade rate in the automobile industry would be very different for a wide variety of reasons. Another reason to recommend the video is that Professor Greenwald provides examples of these calculations, and as you watch him march through the calculations, he does it pretty quickly. You can see how he uses solid numbers and applies his own Kentucky windage to inform his estimates. Clearly, his experience with investing and his industry knowledge, plus the fact that he developed these concepts, will give you a window into how he thinks. And given the sensibility of the process and his clarity, there's no real technical or intellectual reason why you and I can't follow in his footsteps. So that's the data. Now let's look at the formula for assembling the data and these concepts so that a person can make a choice as to whether the growth rate is sufficient to invest in this stock or not. Professor Greenwald uses the formula R equals D divided by M plus G, where R is the annual return, D is the total current cash distribution to investors that includes dividends, share buybacks, and disbursements to debt holders, all of the cash that's being distributed. M is equal to the market price of the company, and G is equal to the growth rate of the company, or the growth rate of earnings. So the return is equal to the cash. When you divide by the market price, you will get a fraction, and then you add that to the growth rate, which you've already calculated by adding together the four categories. Buffett is fond of saying that if you have to calculate your uh, estimated return out three decimal points, you probably shouldn't be making it. It should be pretty clear that the number makes sense to you. So let's say that you require a 10 or a 15 or a 20% growth rate. You will know pretty quickly from assembling these numbers, you may want to go back and look at how you assembled them, but from this formula, you should have a pretty good idea of what your return is going to be and whether it's going to be a Coca-Cola or a Toyota. Toyota's return is around 2%, I believe. So now we have the numbers. We have both the data and we have the formula used to assemble it. Both reading and listening to Professor Greenwald provides valuable and really important contextual information that an individual investor can apply immediately and use effectively. Let me provide three major points in addition to his method for calculating growth that I have incorporated into my investing practice. The three major concepts that are now part of my practice are specialization of knowledge. Buffett also talks about that, but in a more general way. Specialization of markets and the need to understand moats. Specialization of knowledge. Like Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett, Greenwald believes that each investor has areas of specialized knowledge, whether it's through your profession or inclinations or curiosity or some sort of training. And because markets have become so large and companies and their representation of information are so specialized, we need to use whatever depth of knowledge we have as a competitive advantage. So we stick with investments where we have some knowledge, some awareness, and we can make judgments to better understand the financial information. A good example of this for me is my many former students who work in the power industry. So energy stocks are natural feeding grounds for them. Specialization of markets, number two. 
In a lot of ways, the world is more sophisticated and much more intricate than it used to be. A simple example for me is the number of parts that exist today in automobiles. There are thousands more parts in an automobile today than there were in a car 60 years ago. Auto repair manuals used to be published. They're not anymore. They're online because they are thousands of pages. That's one microcosmic way to describe how larger markets have become compartmentalized or specialized for most companies. So now let's translate that into financial terms. Let's assume that you understand the automobile world and you are weighing whether to invest in Tesla for growth or Toyota for the dividends. The first thing you will do is look at the balance sheets of both companies. And because you understand the automobile business, you will assess the quality of their inventories. It may take reading a few footnotes, but you'll look at their inventories. You'll look at their receivables, whether they have enough cash on hand for anything that you're worried about. You'll read other parts of the annual report to see whether you think that their plans are sensible. These balance sheets won't resemble Microsoft's or Google's balance sheet. And because you don't work in the world or are interested in the world of software or IT skills or search skills, you won't look at Microsoft or Google with the same jaundiced and very focused eye that you would look at an automobile balance sheet or the company's annual report. The third concept is moat or durable competitive advantage. If you Google moat investing, you will get over 3 million entries. So there's no lack of discussion of this concept. It's an important concept. To put it simply, it is some attribute, the size of the company, the brand, the loyalties, the efficiencies of production that make it very difficult for another company to come into a market and reduce the moat holders market, reduce their revenues or their business. Again, Coca-Cola is the most frequently cited example of having a big moat because it's been around for about 100 years and it really doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Graham used the term durable competitive advantage and Warren Buffett coined the popular use of the term moat. What is interesting about Buffett is that he shares all sorts of information about Berkshire Hathaway and their business practices, but I have not seen or read anything in which he talks about how you identify a moat. So building my own working assumption, trying to figure out whether a company has a moat or not, I, number one, look at their earnings history. Is the history consistent and are their earnings rising? And secondly, I read about management's plans for the future. That is just as important as the earnings. Are they planning intelligently and are they doing what I think they need to do to grow their revenues in the future? Let's take Coca-Cola again. Today, they sell water, they sell several types of teas, they sell a bunch of health drinks, and they also sell sports drinks. If you look carefully, they have built these brands to be separate from Coca-Cola, and the only way that you will know that they are Coca-Cola products is if you look carefully, or they don't want to advertise the fact that when you're buying a tea product or a health drink product, it's produced by the big sugar water company. My final recommendation for the cited Professor Greenwald video is a segment about 25 minutes in where he asks whether Tesla will have a moat five years from now. They have one right now, but will they have one in five years? He also asks about Google and Apple. I won't give you the answers to that question because it's worth watching and listening to the guy describe what he's doing. He answers his questions, not dogmatically, but very thoughtfully and in a very reasonable way, 
and leaves room for you and I to discuss it with him. The last part of my podcast usually asks you a question so that you will apply these concepts to your investment practices. So my questions for you today are, number one, do you think Professor Greenwald's approach to dividing stock analysis into three financial metrics, assets, earnings, and growth, and his way of looking at growth, do they make sense? I'm not asking if you will use it, but just does it make sense to you? Number two, let's assume that you believe that intrinsic value is a useful concept and you believe in buying stocks that are undervalued. Let's also assume that you've done a good job of investing up to now, but you'd like to be better and be more efficient. So my questions are, what resources do you use to assist you in that process? And would you use a useful resource to assist you in implementing Greenwald's approach if you found one? Those aren't very hard questions, but I want you to think about them. I will share my answers to those questions with you in my next podcast, and we will take value investing from that point forward. Thank you for listening. I hope that this has been useful to you, and I look forward to bringing you more tools that translate concepts into actions that produce sustainable earnings for you. If you feel that this has been helpful, please recommend it to a colleague. Mike Lehan, Financial Frameworks. (laughs) 